Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the final day and the final keynote from Learning 2.0. We're so excited to have Heidi Hayes Jacobs back. We were worried that we were going to miss her, but she is here and she has limited time, so I'm not going to spend any more time than is needed to let her get started. Heidi, take it away. Thanks a lot, Steve. First of all, um, I'm delighted to participate with Steve on such an exciting project. My hunch is that all of you who are participating have been learning a great deal from a lot of our colleagues and all of us participating now who are fascinated with the problem of what is it we're going to do to prepare kids for the future. And when I look at these questions, uh, one of the things that I want to direct you to is our clearinghouse. And before I go further, I do want to say that as we look at preparing kids for the future, our clearinghouse is uh, developed by people like you. And it has got hundreds and hundreds of Web 2.0 uh, applications for classroom teachers from all over the world who have been vetted. We provide this free, and I would encourage you to go there. Um, these are the two essential questions that uh, I want to raise. And, um, and I think these are the questions that really need to govern what we do. And I often, when I speak, will have a child in a chair. I imagine a child in a chair sitting next to me, so I'll have an empty chair up on a stage or in an auditorium or in a group. And I always imagine that I've got a, a child with me. And the other day, I was speaking in Toronto and to the teachers of Peel and uh, the, the big um, district right outside of Toronto. And the name of the student that they chose was Simran, which is a little girl whose parents are from India. And I thought it was a great choice because that's how our world is now. We have students from all over the world who are, in fact, are all over the world. And I really always say this. Our job is to prepare Simran for her future. Our job is to prepare Abdul for his future or Rachel or Joey, or Lawrence, or Susie, or whomever your students are. And I don't say that lightly because what I really do think is happening is in general, even with good tools, we're preparing kids for roughly around 1990. And part of the thing that concerns me most here, and I want to explore with you, is I, I, I don't think there's a total clarity on the marriage between curriculum, instruction, assessment, and new technology tools. I think what sometimes people feel is if we let kids use, and it's a sort of let thing, if we allow them to use these tools, then suddenly they're going to be prepared. This just isn't the case. Um, I'd like to get into that with you right now and take a little time uh, to, to explore that idea. So, first question is really how do we prepare our kids for the future? And one of the things is, is thinking about how we do it right now in the classrooms we're in, but also what schools need to look like and how they need to alter since they're such dated structures. So those, that's, that's a big focus. And the second question is something that my good friend Alan November often asks, and that is who owns the learning? And if Simran, if the, the child who's sitting with us right now, um, doesn't own her own learning, and who does it belong to? And I think another reason these tools that we have are so wonderful and the good use of them is it allows us to update our curriculum, allows us to update our practice. It allows us to engage kids, but it allows them to own their learning. And I do think there's new pedagogies afoot. And since I last spoke with you, Steve, I've been doing a lot of work on that, on what does a 21st century pedagogy look like. We have a new kind of learner. I think we need new types of teachers and new types of relationships with kids and new types of schools. So if I might, I'm going to try to get at some of these questions. I think the three most basic questions that anyone who writes curriculum is thinking about is what are you going to cut, what are you going to keep, what are you going to create? Because no one listening right now can add much to their day. It's pretty packed. But maybe we even have to start to think differently about what the day is. Is it the day in school? Obviously, there's lots of work with the flipped classroom, looking at new ways of using time. I also think we need to create some new solutions. Um, I like a lot of ideas about the flipped classroom. I like them a lot. 
But I still think we're, we're hampered. We're still working within the structures that we have. We're going to probably need some things that are bolder. I often ask this question when I'm speaking to groups, and I wrote it in my book, Curriculum 21. And um, I mentioned earlier our website, curriculum21.com. And that website, the clearinghouse, all of this emerged from that book, Curriculum 21, A New Essential Curriculum for Changing the World. And, and the first question I'm really asking here, there, and, and we try to address on our site and in our tools and what we're working with, is you've got to own the year you're preparing your kids for. Um, the other day I, I was in a school district in Florida. And I asked them, I said, if we were visiting your school and we looked at your schedule as an artifact, if we looked at your curriculum as an artifact, and I think one of the most telling items to consider is, is the type of assessments that you use. It's, it's evidentiary. It's, it shows evidence of what's valued. And I ask the question, if you look at these almost like an anthropologist, what year would you say you're preparing your learners for? And this, these people in Florida were very honest. I, I mean, I think we'd have to say that although they had a lot of tools, the curriculum, the assessment, we're preparing them for around 1990. So I often will mention in a keynote that I think we either have to change our mission statements and simply say we're preparing kids for 1980 and that's the way it is, or we need to begin to alter our practice. Here's the class of 2029, this year's preschool. And if, I, if that doesn't get your attention, I really don't know what will. So when we look at, at pedagogy, when we look at how we teach kids, and we're looking at the design of curriculum and assessment and the design of schools, I think we have to look at how kids are engaging with us and with information. So um, I often mention uh, Steve Wilmart's points he raised in my book about social production, social networks, semantic webs, media grids, nonlinear learning. And what he was really saying is these are five trends that have changed everything about teaching and learning. We all know that we can use Wikipedia, which of now is as accurate as the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that affects how we should create curriculum, because now we have knowledge being democratized students can produce information together on your websites. Um, and I'm assuming most of you have your own classroom website. This is a virtual place where you can meet and create information together. That's new. Another thing that's new is the use of social networking. Steve is noted for his incredible development and support of Classroom 2.0 website, which as far as I understand is the largest educational um, professional learning network online where we all meet. And so many of us now have gone on to create our own networks of support. Well, kids have that too. So that changes how we run a classroom. It isn't just class time. It's the way we network our learners. Because of the search capacities of the web and the fact that computers search semantically, students are processing information in less linear ways. They put in for a search on, on say, Google or Bing. And, and up pops a list, but that list came semantically, not necessarily logically. And so that means we also have to work concurrently to, to help them be more insightful and more uh, critical as a knowledge, as they acquire knowledge across the web. But that gives us an opportunity for much wider catchment of information. Um, and the media grid, that our learners need to be cultivating a wider range of ways for displaying what they know. So those five are in play. So here's a question I would pose for you. And I'd actually be very um, um, engaged in, in trying to you know, find it very engaging to find what your thought is on this. But here's something I'm working on right now. Um, a couple things I want to share with you. And kind of new for me, Stephen. I'm, I'm, I'm very delighted to have this opportunity to start to share it. I'm thinking a lot right now, and I'm working with a colleague of mine, Dr. Marie Alcock, on this, um, of a new type of way of looking at pedagogy. Let's think about the trends I just mentioned. And I'd say that basically there's three clusters or three types of pedagogy we could, we could describe. One cluster would be what I'd just say is antiquated. And, and that has to do with the teacher's relationship with the kids. And this is all really important because 
what I believe, the way I hold my relationship with kids and curriculum has everything to do with the choices I'm going to make. Nobody works without thinking about it, even if we act mindless sometimes or some kind of thinking. So I'd say antiquated pedagogy is when the teacher really isn't thinking about the kids. It's kind of drive-by. It's like that old, those old lecture classes. You have a professor with 100 people in him. He didn't care who they were. It's like, I'm, I'm engaged with the material. You, you dip into the room. I could care less who you are. That's your problem. I'd say that's antiquated. I'd say the second cluster is what I term classical. And I would argue that most of us who are even participating right now were classically trained. And classical pedagogy is more Aristotelian, if anything, and really has to do with your very real relationship with the learner and the material, that you care very much about how you engage the learner. You care very much about how you sequence your questions. Think Socrates for a moment. You're very thoughtful about how you group your kids. You think about when to pause. You think about how to organize instruction in a way where you're silent and on the sidelines. You look at how do you engage them in text? How do you sequence your curriculum? That's classical. And that, that is very much, very much still on the docket. Anything classical deals with the timeless. Shakespeare is timely. That means he's always timeless. Don't give up your classical teaching. You're going to need it. But you see, I think this is where it's exciting. There's a third emerging, and I think it has to do with a new kind of teacher and a kind of uh, teacher 21, a new type of time where we need pedagogies that support self-navigation. And that excites me, and I want to explore it more. And in a way, the notion here is that the new pedagogies are very much oriented towards the student. But what I think is interesting is the teacher's a student, too. Um, I think there's a guy, um, his name is David Longford. He does some really interesting work. And in his work, he's doing a lot of work in schools where teachers and students no longer even have those names. They're all colleagues. There's something that's shifting here. And what I think is new in the new self-navigation pedagogy is that we're looking at how do we prepare kids, because they still need some of our classical work. They still need us. We need them, too. And to me, that's sort of one of the most exciting parts of our, our work together. This is a slide I often show. And I, I think what I want to point out is, in this instance, it's very clear who owns the learning. And it's very clear that these kids are being prepared not only for five, ten years from now, but for right now. In fact, if you look at this, this is a National Geographic um, uh, sponsored event with a classroom, Sylvia Tolosano's in Jacksonville, Florida, where she's studying Antarctica. She's studying the continents. And her fifth grade class is hosting an exchange with a National Geographic uh, uh, explorer in Antarctica live using Skype. There's a back channel between other schools that are watching the event through live streaming. And they are making their comments, feeding those to the uh, interviewer. Anytime the, there's a data point that the explorer makes, uh, it's noted. And the kids are going to go back and do, do some research. And the point I would get at is this should be part and parcel of what we do on a regular basis. It's akin to me. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a performative assessment. It's like a concert. It's like, a, it's like the game. So when I look at these questions, one of the things that I would, I would raise, or some of the questions I would raise that really kind of fascinate me right now, is that we need to start to develop for our new kinds of learners three new literacies. And this is another thing I'm writing right now. And I'd like you, I'd love to hear your response to this, because I feel like this is where we're soft that there's, there's a lot of good intentions. And some folks, and probably many of you listening, are so fully engaged, you would be what I'd call um, connected teachers. But there are a lot of people who, where it's getting sort of sloppy. It's a little bit of dabbling. And on some level, I don't think it's formal enough. And right now, what I'm looking at, as I look at these new pedagogies, is I think there's three new literacies that have emerged that need to be formalized and described, and we need to look at the connections between them. Those are 
digital, media, and global. And I think they're distinctive. And I'm working on this in a new book series I'm doing with um, Solution Tree right now. I've got a bunch of other people participating in, in the series, including people like Mike Fisher and Sylvia and um, Angela. And uh, I've got folks from Asia Society working on global. I've got folks at the Pulitzer Center who we've been working with on working on world and global journalism. Um, and plus, one of the things I'm working on is, is a, a new film canon, the formal study of film and media. It's exciting. And all of us are looking at these three. And I have some thoughts about how they're alike and how they're different. I don't think time will allow me to proceed with that right now. But what I'd like to see um, change in advance is in our school curriculum, we formally work on these three literacies, which I think sit on the shoulders of traditional print. If you can't, um, if you can't read a book, you can't read a computer screen. But I, I think these three are worth, worth taking a look at. Um, what I'd like to do right now is, um, is I certainly can comment on those three, and, and I'm, I'm happy to do so. But I, um, I also want to stop for a minute, and um, I'd like to, to have a chance to see if you have any questions. So take a moment if you want to put in something, and I'll, I'll take a look at that. And then what I, I want to do is I'm, I'm going to um, uh, move ahead. I have a couple of things I definitely want to be sure we address. So take just a minute and see if you have a question or two. And we'll take it from there. So Rahil, I'm giving you microphone privileges. Click on the talk button to ask your question. I can't hear him. I'm afraid yeah. it's going to be a little problem. Uh, we're not. We're just getting little bursts of static from you. Go ahead and put your question in the chat if you would. Oh, he's reconfiguring his microphone. So again, if you'd like to ask a question with the microphone, you can raise your hand. The third icon over in the participant window, and we'll give you the mic, or you can put your question in the chat. I'm going to move this ahead right here, Steve. That was a quick rush through. So. Um, the trick of addressing these three literacies is that they are changing so quickly. And you've kind of correctly addressed the big idea, uh, not specific tools, won't it? I think that that is a great point. But here's how I'm looking at it. Um, great point. That's heady craft. Thank you. Um, this is what, what is emerging for me right now. And um, in my work, as Steve knows, my entire career I've worked on creating models for practice. And the first book I wrote was on interdisciplinary curriculum design and implementation. And it came out in 1989. And I looked at a way to look at how we can design curriculum uh, that had a continuum between the disciplines as opposed to this kind of either or piece. And then I went on to work on mapping and some other areas of work. But right now, what I think, um, what I think is, is is happening for me is I'm starting to operationally define digital media and global in curricular terms. Not, not in the terms that we can talk about in the general public, but what we can operate on. And it's starting to get more clear for me. And I think it takes into account the, the notion of growth. So for example, let me run a few ideas by you. Um, right now, what I'm thinking about with digital literacy is, I think it's the word digit. I think of that meaning fingers. I, I think of the notion that, first of all, there's two components. To be literate is to be sophisticated. It's not just that I can make meaning. If I read a book, um, it's one thing. If I can decode the sound letters, it's phonemic awareness, but it isn't that I can make meaning. In short, right now, I, can, I don't speak French, but I can read French. I, I can read the letters, but that doesn't make me literate because I can't make meaning from it. Similarly. What we want to do with, with the digital tools is one level of digital literacy is access. So schools have to operationally decide at what point are they going to give up keyboarding, at what point are they going to move towards touch technologies, and now voice technologies. But the issue is how do we effectively help students access digital tools? Secondly, I think the key piece is what I'm calling um, strategic selection to help students know what type of tool to choose to solve a specific problem. 
So the notion here is that, um, let's say I want my students to um, look at different points of view of newspapers around the world. I would want that student to know that they could go to newspapermap.org. Let's say I wanted them to be able to use math computations effectively. Maybe I send them to Wolfram Alpha, but I want them to know the difference between, and that's another thing I'm working on, is new tagging systems for digital tools that some are presentation types, like museum box, um, or even time toast to some extent. And others are information-based, uh, where I get information. So for example, Gapminder or um, worldmaps.com. Um, the, the, the idea is, is to help students know the categories of digital tools and then how to access them. To me, that will become a form of literacy. So no matter how it continues to expand, we're going to need to continue to teach people accessing capabilities, but also strategic judgments about how to choose. Secondly, in terms of media literacy, I think, I think of media in terms of li media literacy on two levels, receptive and generative. Um, my ability to receive media itself critically is extremely important and very underdone in schools. I, you know, I have never been in a school ever where it was a requirement that every single middle school or high school kid at least once reads and writes a screenplay. That's last, and that's even last century. The point here is one is how do you view a film? How do you view media? The, we've got a presidential election on in our country, and the way the cameraman holds the camera has everything to do with what I see. I don't think we do enough with that. I think Frank Baker is phenomenal. Frank W. Baker, who I think is the best in the country on these skills. But the point is how do we teach our kids to be good critics? But then there's media that's generative, the making of the film, the making of the documentary. And I don't know, I get a little annoyed, to be perfectly honest, when I see a school with kids running around with flip cameras, throwing them in their laptops, and suddenly they think they have a movie. It's, it's how do you create good quality that seems distinctive, but related to digital, but distinctive. The third literacy is global, and it's one near and dear to my heart. And in that regard, I think we're also looking at not only connecting, whether it's through um, the 100 People Portrait Project or Teddy Bears Around the World or the Discovery Channel link up, you know, or your class connecting with a, a group in Skype. I actually think global literacy is content. I think we are really, really behind in the United States on having our people understand place, the relationship um, of the notion that geography is destiny in so many ways. Even the fact that I believe only 25% of American kids who start college can find London on a map is not only connecting with other places, but really knowing about the world, or say studying the BRIC countries right now. Um, BRIC, of course, is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And what I think is a little bit stunning to people that Brazil is, is surpassed Canada now in terms of a growing economy. Our kids know nothing about that. So those are the three just touchstones, and perhaps at another time we could get into that, Steve. Um, let me continue on and just raise a few points, and then we'll, we'll look at where our time is, because I, I know it's, it's real important um, that we, we uh, get to a few of these other pieces. This um, model you see up here is, 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 is something that I, I wrote about at Curriculum 21, and people have really been using, and it's been exciting. It's not very complicated in terms of the first tier. The second tier is. Uh, the first tier is what I call a short-term upgrade, and that's a strategic replacement of a dated curriculum or assessment product or type or task with a contemporary one. But the formal commitment is that every single teacher in a school does this at least once a unit or at least several times in a semester, and it's shared. I, you know, I, I, I just don't have a much tolerance for, well, we're going to go and see and play with this a little bit. I, I don't think so. I think everybody has to agree to learn something and formally make a commitment to replacing an oral report with a podcast or replacing a, um, a, a visual poster report, say, with something like Museum Box or Zooburst or another Web 2.0 tool. And the idea is to get everybody in, but to do it for curriculum purposes. That, to me, is the marriage piece we want to work on. The second level, um, I think is particularly um, exciting 
is long-term versioning, and that's where we get a whole new version of school. And honestly, Steve, that, that would be one, um, I, I think, for me, that would be one I'd love sometime in the future to do some sort of session with you on, because since I wrote the book, I am now starting to find, periodically, schools that are genuinely new versions of school, not just we're tweaking our schedule a little internally, we're doing our best to bring in the tools, but um, beyond even the notion of a, a virtual classrooms, which we are starting to see a lot of, but really answering the question, for our specific student population, how can we use our, our personnel, our physical space, how, how, what kind of learning would be best done on site, what would that look like, and what does it look like in a virtual setting, and to break out of the artificial things we do to ourselves, for example, even having something called K-12 education. Some kids could use two or three more years of school and their, year, their life would be better. This strange way we base our calendar on an agrarian calendar still. So we kind of got 19th century schedules, 20th century curriculum in most of the places, and we got 21st century kids. And I think we have a lot of 21st century teachers. So we need schools to kind of catch up in a way with, with where we are. So the three basic elements in curriculum are content, skills, and assessment. They've always been around. They are classical in some ways. But now what we want to do is infuse them with more modern practice. By far and away, I would say that content is the most challenging of all elements. Um, skills and assessment, I think, are um, much easier to contend with. Um, hold on just one sec. I got this call coming in. I'll just put the phone over here. Um, so what we, what we see when we're upgrading is we generally ask people to go to assessment first. And I'll give you a few examples of this that I think might, might make it work, be more, make it more clear. Um, for example, I was working with a chemistry teacher who said to me, I'd like to upgrade some of my assessments. I've used some pretty traditional approaches. And I said, well, give me an example of um, something that uh, you think needs help. And he says, well, my kids don't know how to take notes. And I said, you, you do notebook checks. And he, I said, he said, I do. And I said, you use them on paper? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, maybe we should think of another way of doing it. And I said, what's the problem with their note taking? He said, well, they don't know how to abbreviate. And, I, you know, I practically started choking on my coffee. So I'm thinking, these kids can text like crazy. What are you talking about? Well, this is what he said. This is really cool. So listen to this. This is, this is really, really cool. He said, okay, I'll do an upgrade. And he said, what, what about this idea? I think it's brilliant. I think teachers can really do this if you give them a chance. Uh, he said, all right, I get the context message, so I'm going to do this. He puts the kids, he has about 25 kids in his chem classes in groups of five. He says, I want you to read the first four chapters of your chemistry book, and I'm going to give you the week, and each of your teams needs to come up with a new abbreviation system so that you can take notes on the text, and I will accept texts for your note-taking. So the kids actually really read it because they now own it, and the first one of uh, – the first one, the first abbreviation they came up with was PCE, which is now Periodic Chart of the Elements. And they came up with one for Newton. They came up with one for other ones. This is my favorite part of the story. I mean, it, it could only be high school kids who would do this. It's hilarious. So the kids come up and say, you know what's great about chemistry is when we look at the actual elements, they already have a text system. So they're like thinking somebody was texting when they did iron or carbon or whatever. But here's the bottom point. They owned it, and now it's theirs. And he has a more efficient way of assessing. Or, as we all know, using a Facebook page instead of a report. Whether you're doing a Facebook page on Julius Caesar or a Facebook page on John Hancock or a Facebook page on Nelson Mandela, it could be in his profile. Look at what he would be on his wall. Look at his social networks. Students reorganize and actually own the material, and I think it creates more in-depth literacy because you have to reorganize, codify, and consider different ways of working. Uh, you know, when I look at iAuthor and a lot of the other tools out there for kids to do self-publishing, 
there's another side to this when, when we do it, is that in order for me to self-publish, what I have to do is use some of the classical literacy tools that are necessary. There's not a, a teacher who's on right now who, who is not aware of the fact that students need to learn, when they learn to read, they learn to look at what we call text features. So if I'm reading a, a newspaper, I, the text feature are headlines and columns, for example. Um, if, I'm, if I'm looking at a, uh, an email, there'll be text features at the top, the who and from, the email address, and so forth. Well, one thing I think is real interesting is that in order for students to um, write, one of the things we're asking teachers to upgrade is to use these tools not only to write their books, um, but to use them as an opportunity to study layout and design. And in the process, they improve and upgrade the kids' learning skills and also meet a lot of other standards along the way. Or, of course, you all know probably Alan's story about the Skype grandmothers and having a grandmother from another part of the world read a story to the class and upgrade your practice. It strikes me you could start to catalog these now that we record all the time with Skype. I could see a teacher having an archive of um, Skype sessions with grandmothers, grandparents around the world reading stories that kids could replay and we could use these in performance assessments. Um, I've had all kinds of really good suggestions. One of my favorites was from Tasmania when I was most recently out in Australia and um, in the island of course was south of Melbourne um, and Sydney. The te one teacher there told me how they were um, at the end of their social studies unit in their middle school, instead of having kids do reports, they, um, they replaced that with um, uh, uh, previews, trailers. Each, each team had to make a, a, a trailer of that unit. They were studying the history of Australia. So um, at the end of the beginning of Australia's first period with Britain, where it was a prison colony, there's the whole trailer can be used and the kids create a downloadable study guide. So at the end of the year when they take their national exams, which would probably be in December, um, into the Australian school year, the kids can play the trailers, go through the study guides. And what I heard, I got an email from this teacher who told me about it. I thought it was just amazing and the quality was great. Uh, it was a Mac school, so they were using iMovie, is that now all the new batch of kids coming in view these in advance. And she says they've really done better, significantly better, even on the, the, the state exams and so forth. So, you know, I, I, look at, I look at the possibility for upgrading and replacing, but I also think like something like podcasting, of course, is obvious with kids, but I'd also like to point out that administrators should use this too, that instead of having back to school night, parents work, it's hard to get to these things. They should have like five podcasts a year or have a webinar with the parents that, you know, this isn't just for teachers to be using with kids. It's, I think every administrator needs to be connected and demonstrate that they can do at least one replacement, use a tool in a more modern or effective way. One thing that I um, uh, often talk about is that, and I'm moving ahead a little bit here, is that I think our older forms of testing really are the enemy. Um, as Steve knows, I did a TED talk about a year and a half ago on this, and I broke a pencil on my TED talk because I think this is really, if this is what we value, if we think these tools are going to help us prepare kids for the future, we are in trouble. It does not mean we don't deal with basics, but there's new basics too and new ways to engage, and I think this is an important piece. Let me finish with this notion, and for some reason the slides are not coming out properly. I'm not sure why, probably got lost in translation. They were in Keynote and shifted to PowerPoint. I want you to do, no, I do know that the S belongs up by the end of assessment. If I were to take, for example, one thing I do with teachers, if I took three basic forms you're all familiar with, classical forms, persuasive, informative, and narrative. If I said, what's, what's something persuasive? You might say a persuasive essay. What's something informative? An informative report. We were looking at what a narrative is, a narrative story. We fused them with a new genre and create a different assessment. The fusion is what makes better quality because I think people feel they're losing some of the things they know from the past. We want to keep what works. We want to let go of what isn't. So watch. If I, if I, if I were to say, uh, uh, 
Hetty, the person who sent me the, 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 message, the question before the comment, if I were to say to her, and I went to her class, and I said, class, I want you to make a persuasive Skype. I want you to make a Skype to inform. I want you to use Skype as a narrative. What's going to happen is I'm going to get better quality because um, I think the idea here is, is that there's important persuasive elements that need to be fused. If I ask my kids to use Twitter in a narrative fashion or to inform, for example, many of you I'm sure know um, real-time real World War II Twitter. If you put in those words or you search on Twitter for real-time World War II, it'll blow you away. It's, it's, almost, it's one of my very favorite examples to try to galvanize a faculty who's hesitant to have a hashtag or afraid of Twitter. They, they're blown away. I mean, in this instance, if Twitter had existed through World War II, you can go back to 1939 and you can see a whole sitter, series of uh, uh, tools, uh, or pardon me, tweets, um, as if they came from a German, as if they came from Italy, as if they came from England, and all of them are connected to um, uh, primary search documents. I mean, they're incredible. So I'm going to give you a couple other examples here, and we'll, we'll finish up and see if you have any additional questions. Uh, once I get rolling, probably good to hit the brakes for a minute. So you know, I don't want to over do my welcome here. But I'm, I'm pumped, and I'm, it really is exciting. Um, so let me throw this out. When I did the TED, you know, and I know that some of you have thought of this already, so believe me, I'm very aware of it. But when I did the TED, and Alan was there, and um, Dennis Litke, and these great people, um, Will Richardson, it was a wonderful group. Um, uh, I, I was really, I really had a great experience. I mean, and, and they're very tight protocols, you know. It's 15 minutes, and they send you these protocols, and you have to stick to the rules, and and you know you got to think about the prompt was what's on your mind and fascinating you the most in your work. And I had a good time and I felt pretty relaxed and I felt it went fine. Um, but I left and my husband was with me. He watched and and Jeff comes up and says, "What do you think?" I said, "I think it's great, but I think kids should be doing this. I mean, I I think every student should do a TED. And if you're going to make a TED and study how to make a quality TED." And you're going to have to watch them. And that's good. Um, I think teachers should be doing TED Talks. So I have posted on our clearinghouse, which I mentioned before, you know, curriculum21.com. You go to the clearinghouse, and all kinds of tags are there, and you can search. I certainly hope this group submits some new additions to our tools. But I posted on the professional development tag um, the TED protocols. And sure enough, I mean, there are people who had thought of this before I had, for sure. but um, I, I have to tell you, it is a gas to see kids study them and then do them and work with them. And the other thing I would, I would be saying that I think is a, a prompt that you all need to ask yourselves is we can't, we can't, it is not just a question of having kids make new things and try new projects. I think one of our responsibilities is to work with students together and make collaborative rubrics on what is quality. What makes a quality documentary? What makes a quality podcast? What makes a quality blog? There's a lot of stuff out there, but isn't that great? Now, I think there's a, a study that's going to come out in the new books I'm doing with Solution Tree by a wonderful person, Dr. Renata Edwards. And it was in Kansas. And they studied and developed for about three years some digital rubrics that I think have been really well vetted and really had to help, help kids help create better quality work. So. To wrap it up, um, I would say some of the criteria I use for an upgrade is it encourages engagement and curiosity. Um, but here's one of my favorite little things. Here I've been at my work for over 40 years now, and you know you keep learning. I've, I've fallen in love again with another word that I used to always use, and that's the word research, because suddenly it hit me, like just hit me like a bolt. Research means search again. It needs search again. And the one terrific tool about the use of these tools, it gets kids to search again. They can go deeper. But they need us. I think we use an upgrade when it, it deepens content. It engenders independence, and we see quality in student work. So 
I'll finish with two points. Um, I finished a new uh, kind of a book. It's called a live book. It's a new version of a book. And Steve, it's not like even like an ebook with links. It was, it's been trademarked, the, the platform, and it's on mapping to the core, to the common core. And I think that the common core is an opportunity to upgrade. I really do. And 48 states have committed to common core. Catholic schools around the country have committed to it. It's good. It's workable. It's even going to get better. There's all the types of opportunities to inject the new literacies. And, um, and the slide book is with the School Improvement Network. And it's just come out. And I got to write in a new way. Let me tell you what happened for me. This is amazing. In the live book, um, there's all types of opportunities to connect, interconnect. Um, it, it's not just embedded video. It's a level of interaction that's tremendous. But for me as a writer, I have a master here on my computer. And if I want to add something to the book, it will automatically change in everybody's book. So I don't have to wait, like with paper, to revise a book. It's exceptional. Um, um, so I, I'd leave you thinking about that, those of you who are engaged in this work. And then the last piece, and again, the slide has come out funny out of keynote. It's, it was translated. But one of the proposed performance assessments I would make is that I think every student before they graduate needs to create an app. I can't think of a more uh, revealing, helpful, practical experience on creating a solution or taking information, organizing it, and sharing it in an interesting way um, to make this happen. Um, I think what I'm going to do is finish up here and um, go back, if I might. Let's go back. I'm not going to do all You may not slides. be able to go back very far because I deleted slides. Yeah. <laughs> it's really OK. Um, it's really all right. Uh, let's see what I might finish with here. Uh, I was told yeah. you had a hard stop. Are you concerned about time? I do. Yeah, I am. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap it up here. And um, I think what we're looking at then is revising and upgrading our skills, digital, global, and media. I think what we're looking at is showing the courage and the wherewithal to recognize that we don't dump everything from the past. You know, Winston Churchill said, the further backwards we look with depth, the more intelligently we can move forward into the future. But there's a lot we've done in the past we need to let go of. We need to shed a great deal. And I think what we want to do, though, is take the best practices from the past that were about engagement, not about all about the teacher, but engaging. And I think linking them, um, linking them very much towards um, the new literacies we have, the practical realities of kids engaging in the future, so we can prepare them. Um, so I thank you. Um, I thank you very much for your time and attention. And Steve, um, if you want, we could take one or two questions and then wrap it up. It's your call. Let's go ahead and take questions until you tell us to stop. Uh, Judith, comfort okay. on giving you audio. So you, you know how to do this. You've done it many times. Uh, go ahead. Yes, I guess you're hearing from me too much uh, today. Uh, it's Judith Comfort calling from Vancouver, Canada. And I am a teacher librarian. and. Um, uh, your basic question about how do we um, uh, manage the three literacies, digital, media, and global, is like basically my ballet work, and that's what I spend all my, my days of living, breathing, and thinking about the answer to that. And uh, my answer is that we don't separate the three of them. So I'm really interested in why you separate the three. Uh, for example, I've been working, um, I have a model which I've developed for, for teaching whereby um, you basically create a blog, and you put your assignment in it, and you integrate all your resources, all your information literacy th um, thread, your media literacy thread, and then you basically let the kids loose at it. And um, it seems to be that, that because of the net, we should be integrating more. We shouldn't be separating yeah. things out. I mean, let me respond. That's a, a great point. And, and let me respond. Here's uh, my, my, I'm with you 100% on that. I really am. My work has all been about curriculum integration. In fact, if you look back on my career, you'll see the word integration a zillion times. But here's one thing I've learned. Thoughtful integration means that I need to know the whole is the sum of the parts. So I think the way it comes together, and if I could show you visually, it would be a three-dimensional model, which it sounds like to me you're going to follow exactly what I'm talking about here. That the way I bring them together thoughtfully is going to, in fact, be the overlap and is going to be the fusion of these three. 
But what I think sometimes happens, and, and you may not agree, and that's certainly, you're right, and, and that's fine, but I think what happens is unless we're clear, even to some extent granular, on the skills that contribute to that fusion, what happens is we sometimes don't get quality. So I agree with you. Um, I'm going to be using digital tools to connect globally. I'm going to be creating media because of my knowledge about the world or the context it's in. I'm going to be pulling these together. So no, I don't think we teach them in isolation. And so thank you for raising the question. But I would argue, and, and I feel pretty strongly about it, that I see a lot of things going out there on, out in schools that are well-intended, but quite honestly, pretty superficial projects. So I think when you, what you say in terms of your own way of working, it sounds to me like you're on the right track. I mean, and I'm sure you are, and I'm sure you, you're, you're thinking about it. But if I go to a school where somebody isn't like you, hasn't been studying it, hasn't trained in it, or I'm in a school that's worried about losing certain traditional print literacies, what I, I would point out is you can serve those well if we fuse them. So I think it's both. I think what we're looking at is a, a, a clearer handle on what this looks like. In particular, I'm, I'm very concerned about quality media making. And one resource I think you would, in particular might find of interest would be the Jacob Byrne Film Center, which is the largest media center for education in the world. It's 27,000 square feet of studios and space, and they work with teachers and helping kids create. And one of the things they often find is that students come in all ready to make a movie but have fairly weak access skills to digital tools or incredible, in my country more than yours, and I work a lot in Canada, my country suffers from a lack of real good background in global content. So I would say they'd be overlapping, and your point is absolutely well taken, and I would concur. I, I hope that is useful to you. Heidi, are you done? I am. And I mean time-wise. Uh, yeah, we take one more, and that's it. Okay, Rahil, we're going to try again. Let me try before and let's see how your microphone's doing this time. Click on the. Can you now hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, it was really inspiring. I completely agree with the quality point uh, that you have made because I have also seen the same thing. Uh, my question is that though uh, we are talking about these three literacies, and we are, uh, you also showed the uh, National Geographic sponsored event. But what I've observed is that, uh, you know, for, for, a, uh, for a course, what mostly the or subject teachers, what teachers do is that they completely change their uh, pedagogic system. So they will be only using that kind of uh, teaching strategy, and, uh, and then there is no formal or classical method there. So uh, if they don't blend the course in terms of both lecturing and also these kind of, you know, uh, web 2.0 or learning 2.0 tools, uh, then uh, students are really, uh, uh, you know, feeling bad with content. You know, they are not getting the content right. So what are your views about that? Um, I want to be sure I understand the question. Um, Maybe, Steve, your microphone is a little better. Would you be able to um, perhaps summarize his question about, was he talking about the, the obligation that a group has towards traditional or old-style lecture and the newer tools? I, that's what I could hear and pick up. I'm embarrassed because I was organizing another room. <laughs> I did not hear the question. I, I You're going to have to go with your best interpretation. Uh, Rahil, I, I hope I heard you properly, and if I did not, um, okay, there you go, yes, the balance between the two. Well, I don't, let me restate something, because I, I don't know if I communicated this properly. I don't think it's a balance. See, I, I don't think I'm trying to balance traditions from the past. I think that the question is always, immediately, right now, uh, what are the best tools to use to help this learner engage in preparing him or her for now and the future? And okay, sometimes it's going to be uh, live in a group. I mean, if we were sitting um, in Central Park right now in New York City, 
you know, we were in a big, a big great field, and we had blankets, and we were talking and having a picnic and chatting. That'd be great. That's a great way to interact with people. And it's live. But that's not realistic. We can't do that. Um, you know, what, what type of approach works? Does a lecture in front of a group, is it efficient? Can, to, can people deliver good ones? Yeah. Could that be useful? It could. I don't think it's a balance. I think it's always what makes sense. Sometimes, you know, you want to turn kids loose on a computer. You know, recently uh, somebody asked me in a workshop, they said, Heidi, how do you feel about a kid being on a computer for three hours? I said, it depends on what they're doing. I mean, you would never ask that if it was a book. And the truth is there's some lousy books out there. I don't think I want to convey that we take a balance from the past. I think what it is is we've got to get rid of the things that aren't working and keep those that are. Um, let me finish with this. Let me finish with this one last piece, Steve, and then we'll wrap it up. This was amazing. It actually came from a Canadian teacher. Um, I was speaking in Winnipeg a few months ago in Manitoba, and it was a large group. And, um, you know, I was probably three or four hundred people. And it, at the end of the, the, the I, was, I, was, I was having them use tools. We were using Today's Meet. We were interacting using Twitter. It was a fun session. And suddenly a guy pops his hand up teacher and he says, can I make a comment? I said, of course. And he said, Heidi, I, I want to challenge the phrase 21st century skills. I said, keep going. I'm interested. He said, because I don't understand why we use that phrase. He said, it, it sounds kind of like Isaac Asimov in the future. He said, don't you think these are right now skills? I just thought he nailed it. What we're talking about are right now skills. So we need to be right now teachers, and we need right now schools. And uh, I think the sooner we continue to work on this upgrading um, process, uh, the better. Um, Steve, I, I think this is, I believe, the last keynote. And I want to thank you for your flexibility and working in because of a, a little bit of a fluke. These things happened yesterday. But you should you should know how much what a contribution you are making personally to the field by supporting and hosting these events. And I can't thank you enough for including me. And um, all of you who participated, I think we had a lively group. You guys are great. <laughs> and any information you want to share, all my slides, everything I have is on my website. You just can go to the Clearinghouse at Curriculum 21, go to PD, um, the Professional Development tag, and scroll down and find um, Upgrading. That'll probably do it, those slides, the upgrading slides, or Curriculum 21. And if you want to just reach us, you can, and we'll get back to you. Um, but thanks for hearing me out. This was, this was, was good for me, and I, I hope it was of some value. Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you. You've closed this out in a great way. I'm clapping for you. I'm hovering over the smiley face going down to the applause <laughs> button. Thanks, Heidi. Please feel free to just run, because we know you need to. We do have a closing celebration for the conference that starts in just a couple of minutes. It's, I'll put the link in the chat. It's http uh, l20.me. We'd love to have you there. It'll be short and sweet, but just a little fun to celebrate. Thanks to Heidi Hayes Jacob. Thanks to you all for being here. Have a great day or evening, depending on where you are. Take care, everybody. Bye.